the fact is almost every company now is progressively becoming a tech company. I mean, Mark Andreessen, who uh, so decided Andreessen Horowitz in 2011, talked about quote-unquote software eating the world. And what he was effectively saying is if you buy a cup of coffee almost anywhere now, it's kind of a digital transaction. If you buy a car almost everywhere now, it's a piece of software that's also in the car. And so the phenomenon that has driven the sort of tech-specific rise is also, in fact, a lot of the tool set helpful for people everywhere. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest who I'm sure many of you are very familiar with. Chris Schroeder is a global investor. He's a very successful internet and media entrepreneur. And he's the author of the fantastic book, which I read early on producing this podcast that that was one of the books along with Brad Feld's book that really inspired my journey, Startup Rising. And so, Chris, it's great to have you here. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for thinking of me. No problem. So what's been going on in your world, like le- leading up to everything, leading up to everything? I know you've been focused all around the world. And, and I do want to hear about the story of the first time you went to Dubai at the, uh, the celebration of entrepreneurship. G- g- give us insight into your world right now. Yeah, my world is um, like everybody's world right now. I mean, this is one of the most profound, it is the most profound shared experience of certainly of my lifetime. I mean, it's, that's probably true for even anyone who almost going back to the Second World War. Um, and so a lot of it is just focused on, you know, making sure family and friends are okay, make sure people who are not, you know, that lucky are okay, and that we kind of listen to each other and walk very humbly and, and do what we can. My, my daily life is I literally get up, you know, very early in the morning, and I'm on Zoom from there till midday, starting with Asia, and I talk to entrepreneurs and investors and just kind of people who, I, who think I like the way they think, and I head towards the Middle East. And then I cut down to East Africa and maybe to Latin America and then do a little bit in America. And um, it's been highly, highly efficient, but I miss terribly being on the ground. And what I hear is a mix of some things which are quite hopeful and a lot of things which are certainly deeply uncertain and some that are, of course, very sad. So it's just a time for us to all rally and and just to be with each other because we'll get through this in that way. Yeah. No, I I completely agree. I think it's a time when... I mean, I think now more than ever, we need, we need bottom-up leadership in the form of entrepreneurship. And you know, what's, what's exciting is that we have tools at our disposal that we've never had before to allow for that. It's the entrepreneurial spirit. It doesn't matter what vehicle that's applied to, for, you know, but it's that spirit that's going to, I think, get us to a positive other side of this. I mean, what you're saying is so powerful, right? Because this has actually been building up for time. So it's almost become a cliche to talk about how you know, two thirds of humanity or, or more have supercomputers in their pocket that each mobile device we have is more computing power than NASA had in 1969 and collectively to put a man on the moon. Um, and so there's been an unleashing of what you call the bottom up in problem solving any corner in the world. I mean, we've always known talent is everywhere. It is now unleashed. It's opened up because of this. And what is interesting is that COVID in a way has done even more unleashing. It has actually taken many trends that have been happening around the world and put them on steroids in a way. Mm. Again, some of it sadly, uh, but some of it, I think, uh, hopeful. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, for us, it's been particularly humbling to see what's happening because, you know, it's, it's, it's a really brought to the surface that this, this conversation of startups, especially when you look at places like Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, this conversation of startups needs to sit within a broader conversation that it just it just doesn't seem that that is is properly happening. Do you see? I mean, you've been at this now for also a long time. You've been a pioneer 
in thinking about this massive shift. Uh, do you feel differently in a way now than you did if you and I were talking six weeks ago? Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's, it, there's no question that it's brought to the surface. I think a couple of things. One is like that, that shift. Andreessen Horowitz has been putting out these blog posts about the passion economy. And, you know, it's the concept of we're going from a world of these platforms like Uber commoditizing our services and labor. And we now have these tools to really differentiate ourselves and scale, scale our personality into brands, into business, into serious business. Yeah. Um, and so that shift it was happening. It was slowly happening. It was kind of, you know, like bubbling up, but like now it's, it's here. Like if you look at Patreon's numbers, if you look at all the, you know, the shift to this new kind of creator economy, like COVID just, I mean, it's, it's, it's night and day from, from where it was in January. And with our brands, we do have an agency model business and we produce podcasts white labeled for think tanks, trade associations. But we've realized like this time is really bringing to the surface that we need to deeply invest into the communities around our brands because that that's the future. It's these niche communities. Podcast is just a, is one vehicle or one media format to really build a sticky community. And, and it's very unique in many ways, but it's the, you know, the concept of leading niche communities. It's what's, it's the way forward. It's, it's what's happening. So it's so powerful in that, in your, in your lens and the way you've done it is, you know, something that in a way you and I, and I suspect even many of your listeners take it for granted and it should, one should breathe and pause because the exponential speed of just everyday adoption of what you just talked about and the principles that are happening in what's been unleashed in virtualness is extraordinary. I mean, we think that, well, you know, America has accepted all these tools and everything. We forget that, you know, like 11% of all e-commerce is still, of commerce is, is e-commerce. There's still huge numbers of people who don't do it on a regular basis. I was talking to folks overseas today and it's like less than 5%. And we've been doing video conferencing for a while, but the fact is a lot of people sort of kind of tolerated it. And now all of a sudden you've got hundreds of millions of people around the world who are saying, holy cow, you know, this really does work. And so my day-to-day basis, that means, you know, I may travel differently in my day-to-day business. I really can be connected to my family in a different way in a day-to-day basis. I can study in ways I knew I kind of could have, but now it really is quite easy. I actually feel good talking to my doctor in my own bedroom. I feel safer doing it. And so you've had this kind of unleashing epiphany that if you and I were talking six weeks ago, I would have told you was happening for sure, but it's the five, 10 years kind of a generational thing. And, and we've had five or 10 years of virtualness happen in 60 days. Mm. And it will unleash some of the things that you've described in your business. And by the way, even at the business level, the conversations I'm having with, you know, like major CEOs of major companies, they really are like this virtualness works. Like my employees are going to want to be able to go visit their mom and work from there if she's not feeling well. My employees should be virtual more as we work our way out of this. Maybe I don't need massive real estate in a city. And so it then has these multiplier triggering questions, um, which I, I don't think go back. Like I think this is a, a really quite remarkable mm-hmm. moment. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it could be understated the profoundness of the shift that just happened in, in, in a matter of weeks. I mean, commercial real estate is done. So what does that mean? What does that mean? What does it mean that everyone's leaving the big cities? I mean, for me, I'm paying 2000 a month for my apartment rent right now. And there's just no reason. Like, you know, I can't justify yeah. that anymore after this. You know, it yeah. was nice to commute, but now it's like, if it's remote work, remote only, I see these thriving communities in the Midwest. Like Steve Case's thesis is completely accelerated through this. I think a lot of Silicon Valley talent goes to the Midwest. I think, I mean, me personally, 
I'm, I'm considering it. I'm considering it for sure. You know, we have to think about the, the old saying that when the tide goes out, we see who's sleeping naked. I was this morning with a great healthcare investor who was t- kind of talking about a lot of the, he's from China, and he was talking about some of the amazing things happening, but he was very humble. And he's like, it also has shown tremendous vulnerabilities. And so as an example, and you're in my world, but I think this is global, everything we've just said is true. Virtualization has been embraced and unleashed. That's great if you have access to technology. If you're one of the two billion people who don't, for all the talk about two-thirds of humanity having a smart device, the fact is uh, literally billions do not. And I hope that we're going to start having a serious conversation about that because at the end of the day, if you don't have that access now, we've, not, we've talked about it. Like we've talked about digital divide. But, but now it's crystal clear if you don't have access, like it's like turning to a human being and saying, you can work, but you can't go on a road. That mm. doesn't work. And so um, if this is also an opportunity for us to reflect on, on what vulnerabilities we have learned and how this is why entrepreneurs are great, because the great entrepreneurs are thinking that, and they now want to go help solve those vulnerabilities. So um, it's going to be an interesting period. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. I think that a lot of responsibility right now falls on ICT ministers that really need to step up and get infrastructure implemented that just they've been, they've been apathetic on. But, yep, I agree but so let's, let's, let's start with this story of when you first went to Dubai. Because what I think you, you saw, what it seems like to me, you saw in that celebration of entrepreneurship is that spirit of you know, entrepreneurship startups there that really inspired you to kind of write the book about the region. Is that, is that right? It is. And it, in a way, the story is an embarrassing story for me and a lesson, I think, to us all uh, and what have you. Because, look, I've been a very global guy my whole life. I've traveled a lot. I've run digital media businesses who had international operations. I I'm a, was a fairly unusual CEO in that, well, like many American CEOs, uh, as technology was becoming available everywhere, we would outsource technology to almost every corner. I mean, I outsourced from Latin America to Sri Lanka. Um, but unlike, I think, a lot of American CEOs, I actually went to visit and actually kind of see these people. And so I actually had an early lens, not only of what we now take for granted, that talent is everywhere and can be unleashed, but also that people where your talent was starting to figure out, I can solve problems in my backyard. Maybe I can take something that's worked in the West and make it work here, or maybe I don't need that at all. I can solve something on my own market's terms. I saw that very early. And yet, my narrative about the Middle East place I loved, by the way. I mean, I've been there as a tourist and all, but my narrative was kind of the CNN narrative, which is for all intents and purposes. Um, you know, this is a lot of conflict and a lot of issues and uh, top-down problems. And even if there was startup or tech stuff happening there, it's a sideshow to sideshow, like how, how impactful could it be? And it was in 2010, as you pointed out, that I got invited from very dear friends who were kind of ecosystem leaders there who said, you're totally underestimating what's happening here. We're having the first major gathering of startups in the Arab world. We all know Israel's extraordinary, but this was in the Arab world. We'd love you to come and talk and mentor and all that. And so I did. And within two hours of being at this gathering in Dubai, I knew my life had changed because it was 3,500 young people from all over the Arab world. There were 3,500 young people on a waiting list trying to get in. Nobody wanted to talk about geopolitical problems. Nobody cared about President Obama giving a speech. They all wanted to focus on solving a problem in their teeth that they wanted to solve. They were incredibly autodidact. They had read every blog post and every idea. Some of them had started things before, a couple of companies, um, you know, one in particular that was famous at the time called Maktoub, which was the Yahoo of the Middle East, got bought by Yahoo, and there was a buzz. And of course, this buzz was happening in parallel with the Arab uprisings. 
In fact, I don't look, I, very often journalists have tried to push me to say these are two separate things. They're not at all. This was a new generation of people who could see the world and could see the problems in their backyard and said, we can do better. And it's our turn. And whether that could be an expression in a debate about what kind of a societal, political, cultural thing, obviously it also means, can I do something to help actualize a vision and build something worthwhile for my community, for my family, and, and create wealth? That was what I ran into in 2010, because it was very, very clear to me if this was beginning to kick up the way it was then, then it was going to happen everywhere, and I needed to understand it. What is your opinion on the need or on the focus of startups, you know, high growth VC models in these, in these countries versus, you know, more of like a small business, like starting coffee shops, starting and scaling successful restaurant businesses. I worry that sometimes in these markets where we're getting too much, too much into the startup VC conversation. And like, there's also the other, you know, the other side of it of, you know, growing freelancers, growing small business owners, agency owners, like there's, I don't know. what, What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a very powerful point in conversation and a problem I think can happen, particularly in my, you know, where I spend a lot of my time is that you can become at one level narrow minded in that and sort of feel like this is the solution to everything. And I think it's unbelievably powerful because, um, you know, if you're take a company called soup.com or any e-commerce company um, that has been successful in a rising market, God knows Alibaba and um, Tencent and all in China I mean, the, the multiplier impact these enterprises have as tech-enabled enterprises is profound. So in the case of Soup.com, Soup not only hired thousands of people and became a very large and successful business that facilitated commerce, 85, I forget it was, 85,000, I think, small businesses were able to reach digital customers because Soup.com was there. It was a platform. And obviously now Ali with Alipay and everything else is unleashed in completely different behavior. And so I, I think it is incredible. I think it has deep multiplier effects. But to your point, it is still very, very connected to what is happening bottom up in traditional entrepreneurship. Because whether, I mean, obviously in the COVID era, starting a restaurant is a more complicated proposition. But whether it's a small manufacturing company or a small idea uh, that wants to become a big idea in a physical space, the fact is almost every company now is progressively becoming a tech company. I mean, Mark Andreessen, you uh, so decided Andreessen Horowitz in 2011, talked about, quote, unquote, software eating the world. And what he was effectively saying is if you buy a cup of coffee almost anywhere now, it's kind of a digital transaction. If you buy a car almost everywhere now, that's a piece of software that's also in the car. And so the phenomenon that has driven the sort of tech-specific rise is also, in fact, a lot of the tool set helpful for people everywhere. I can't tell you, as another example, around the world, but one who was particularly moving to me in the Middle East uh, was a very well-known retail jewelry store in Cairo, been there for decades and everything else. The daughter kind of stepped into the business and put it on Instagram. Also made 80,000 followers. I mean, it completely revolutionized the very traditional business. So these are tools. I mean, technology are profound tools and they can be things into of themselves, but they also can unleash other kinds of areas of ideation and creation that again would have been hard for us to talk about in any of these rising markets a few years ago. I agree. So when you were talking before about some of the calls you were having this morning, are there any like countries in the world that you've been particularly focused on as like an exciting new ecosystem emerging there that most of our listeners or most of like the mainstream startup focus just isn't really paying attention to? I get asked this all the time. Actually, I get asked, you know, what is the coolest, the most important tech phenomenon today, or my top three favorites, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think the one that is my—I mean, I, we could talk about AI and a, and a bunch of things quite thoughtfully. But to me, 
it's the access to this technology almost everywhere, which is one of the great misunderstood stories of our time. And so a cavalier answer to your question could be um, it's happening everywhere because it is. But having said that, aggregations of talent, network effect of talent, you know, young people wanting to be at the same place and to do whatever, you know, matters. Top down does matter. This is a bottom up phenomenon, but government's decisions about making life better, easier, faster, cheaper, more efficient for businesses to thrive matter. And so I kind of have been viewing the world, this uh, small vehicle with a co-founder and its great team called Next Billion Ventures. And Next Billion is like the next billion people having access to technology. Maybe it'll be money, but right now it's that. And we think of the world a little bit out of three hubs right now. So uh, we look at Singapore as a hub to Southeast Asia. We look at Dubai as a hub to the Middle East still, as a little bit of Sao Paulo and Mexico City for Latin America. But that's kind of cheating because there are amazing things happening in Colombia now. There's amazing things kind of early happening in Saudi Arabia. There have been really amazing things happening in Indonesia right now, which has an enormous market. So what I think is happening is that most of us in the West aren't simply understanding that, one, what this access is unleashing. Secondly, the kind of opportunity for co-authorship that can be done. This is no longer about American companies showing up and telling anybody what to do. This is about, we have some expertise, you've got plenty of expertise, can we build something of mutual benefit? And, you know, thirdly, and I think very powerfully, that the rest of the world are creating options. Like, so it isn't the debt, like literally, if you and I are having this conversation eight years ago, certainly 10 years ago, the Facebook, the Twitter, the Instagram, the WhatsApp, or pretty much anywhere in the world not blocked by government, were those companies. The idea that everyone had access to a smart device meant that great American tech companies would win, as they have for decades. Well, all of a sudden, great competitors are being put on the ground. I love Uber. I think it's an unbelievable company. Um, but they couldn't win in Southeast Asia. Like Grab, which is a local competitor, has built into a juggernaut, and, and effectively uh, Uber had to leave with a piece of that business. Uber had to acquire Kareem in the Middle East because they couldn't beat it. And they were also, by the way, worried that maybe a Chinese investor would come in and, and do it the same. So there's this, this shift of these rise of global markets, which at one level you can say means that there's new competition, which is true. But I think it's unbelievable opportunity if one is willing to, one, be open to everything you and I take for granted here. But secondly, are willing to engage in a different way. Yeah, I think, well, I think that also highlights the importance of having a global team. And because, I mean, markets now more than ever are completely opened up to the right product and the right localization strategy. And so if you have a product, a fintech product, say here in the US, and you don't have a global team, you might not know that actually what you're building is hugely useful in Ethiopia and you can launch exactly. there and it's Africa's second most populous country. Right. And I'm so, very, very, I agree with that. And I'm very bullish on fintech. I think one of the things that American anyway, fintechs have learned is that there are many things that you have to, you, you can do it technologically and you can do it with the right people on the ground because among other things, you have to navigate regula regulation and, and consumer, you know, specific demands. But the, but the other thing, which is just so interesting to me is that fintech is a good example is, you know, I've been with fintech companies in Latin America and Africa and Southeast Asia. And in many respects, they share more pattern recognition among themselves than their sisters and brothers in Silicon Valley. And the lesson mm. to American investors should be, yes, we have a lot to bring to the table, but do not underestimate the unique talents, uh, challenges, and opportunities of rising markets that despite cultural differences and language differences and history differences and geographic distances, um, they're actually quite shared. 
because they are navigating regulatory environments in different ways than we in America do. They are navigating educating consumers who never use credit cards in different ways. They're navigating last mile logistics in different ways. And I'll tell you, man, I have these, these moments where I'll sit with someone from Sao Paulo and someone from Jakarta and someone from Cairo, and like 80% of the conversation is the same, but it's not the same conversation they'd be having in Silicon Valley or New York. So it's, it's, it, we need a new humility as we also get on the ground. And, and, and that also translates to SMEs. The SME environment in Africa is very similar to Latin America, which is also very similar to Southeast Asia. And so fr- frankly, Eastern Europe as well. Yeah, um, I agree with But you. One, one thing that I will say that I really have started to feel strongly about is that I believe fintech is taking up too much of the conversation. I think fintech is obviously important, but I think there are other sectors that just aren't getting enough VC attention, enough media attention, and that would basically be mobility, 3D printing, agriculture tech. Because fintech, the problem with fintech is you bank the unbanked, and they're still, like, you, you have a phone, they have a bank account, they're still in poverty. There needs to be more. There needs to be more of a conversation. So in these rising markets, some of my favorite companies are the ones, in fact, and ag tech is one example of it, where they really understand the hands-dirty complexities. And in fact, you know, there's a kind of in, in America that even China's not doing this, is a sort of way is you start with the software and, and then you're, you're like, you win. But some of these great companies that you're alluding to, they actually want to get the hands-dirty physical thing understood first. And then they layer technology on for greater efficiency or cheaper reach. And some of those enterprises are just doing incredibly well in the markets you're describing for that reason. It's very yeah. powerful. It's probably true for Middle East and other regions, but I see it playing out in Africa. It's that everyone's racing to become the super app, but yes. you, you become the super app by finding an initial use case that goes viral. And that could be anything. It could be a game. It could be one specific FinTech feature. doesn't matter. Once you what have do you the- think? Do you think super apps will work outside of China? I don't know. I don't, I, I think that's naturally where things have progress in the long term, but I think it takes a lot longer in other places. I mean, the QR code certainly hasn't caught on here the way, you know, it has in China. I see the QR code starting to get adopted in Africa. I mean, China's putting an unbelievable amount of money through OPEI into Nigeria. Yeah. So it's starting, they're having a lot, of, it seems like they're struggling, but yeah. Nigeria is hard. Nigeria is really hard. Some such talent there, man. Such no, I know. It's just such a hard business environment. I mean, I yeah. think Nigerian entrepreneurs have to be some of the toughest people or toughest entrepreneurs in the world. Anyways, is there anything else we didn't cover that, that, that you think we need to? This has been a, a fantastic conversation. Yeah, I mean, I've frankly enjoyed listening to you more than listening to myself around Milan on it because you have such great pattern recognition to it. No, I just think, you know, it's a, it's a time of uh, tenacity combined with humbleness because mm. – there's just so much that we will be talking about differently in a few months. There's so much we still don't understand about where we are. But, you know, the fact of the matter is bottom-up solutions are where the hope is going to lie. And people's willingness to think differently and not merely try to jam us back into old wineskins, as it is said in the Bible, but are really thinking about what new behaviors are now with us and how can we address them best um, are going to have, I think, great multiplier effects. Awesome. Oh, well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Hey, Andrew here. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to go deeper into the world of the global startup movement, apply to join our online membership community at globalstartup.tv.
where you'll gain access to live Q&As with some of our amazing guests, connect with a highly vetted community of globally-minded entrepreneurs, and gain access to our comprehensive library of courses and training on how to build startups and do business anywhere in the world. Hope to see you there.